the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Chapter 7. Beginning Business in Philadelphia. We sailed from Gravesend on the 23rd of July, 1726. For the incidents of the voyage, I refer you to my journal, where you will find them all minutely related. Perhaps the most important part of that journal is the plan, to be found in it, which I formed at sea for regulating my future conduct in life. It is the more remarkable as being formed when I was so young, and yet being pretty faithfully adhered to quite through to old age. Footnote. The journal is not found in the manuscript journal, which was left among Franklin's papers. End of footnote. We landed in Philadelphia on the 11th of October, where I found sundry alterations. Keith was no longer governor, being superseded by Mayor Gordon. I met him walking the streets as a common citizen. He seemed a little ashamed at seeing me, but passed without saying anything. I should have been as much ashamed at seeing Miss Reed, had not her friends, despairing with reason of my return after the receipt of my letter, persuaded her to marry another, one Rogers, a potter, which was done in my absence. With him, however, she was never happy, and soon parted from him, refusing to cohabit with him or bear his name, it being now said that he had another wife. He was a worthless fellow, though an excellent workman which was the temptation to her friends. She got into debt, ran away in 1727 or 1728, went to the West Indies, and died there. Keimer had got a better house, a shop well supplied with stationery, plenty of new types, a number of hands, though none good, and seemed to have a great deal of business. Mr. Denham took a store in Water Street, where we opened our goods. I attended the business diligently, studied accounts, and grew in a little time expert at selling. We lodged and boarded together. He counseled me, as a father having a sincere regard for me. I respected and loved him, and we might have gone on together very happy, but in the beginning of February, 1726-1727, when I had just passed my twenty-first year, we both were taken ill. My distemper was a pleurisy, which very nearly carried me off. I suffered a good deal, gave up the point in my own mind, and was rather disappointed when I found myself recovering, regretting in some degree that I must now some time or other have all that disagreeable work to do over again. I forgot what his distemper was. It held him a long time, and at length carried him off. He left me a small legacy in a nuncupative will, as a token for his kindness for me, and he left me once more to the wide world, for the store was taken into the care of his executors, and my employment under him ended. My brother-in-law, Holmes, being now in Philadelphia, advised my return to my business, and Keimer tempted me with an offer of large wages by the year to come and take the management of his printing-house, that he might better attend his stationer's shop. I had heard a bad character of him in London from his wife and her friends, and was not fond of having any more to do with him. I tried for further employment as a merchant's clerk, but not readily meeting with any, I closed again with Keimer. I found in his house these hands, Hugh Meredith, a Welsh Pennsylvanian, thirty years of age, bred to country work, honest, sensible, had a great deal of solid observation, was something of a reader, 
but given to drink. Stephen Potts, a young countryman of full age, bred to the same, of uncommon natural parts, and great wit and humour, but a little idle. These he had agreed with at extreme low wages per week to be raised a shilling every three months, as they would deserve by improving in their business, and the expectation of these high wages to come on hereafter was what he had drawn them in with. Meredith was to work at press, Potts at bookbinding, which he, by agreement, was to teach them, though he knew neither one nor t'other. John, a wild Irishman, brought up to no business, whose service for four years Keimer had purchased from the captain of a ship. He, too, was to be made a pressman. George Webb, an Oxford scholar, whose time for four years he had likewise bought, intending him for a compositor, of whom more presently, and David Harry, a country boy, whom he had taken apprentice. I soon perceived that the intention of engaging me at wages so much higher than he had been used to give was to have these raw, cheap hands formed through me, and as soon as I had instructed them, then they being all article to him, he should be able to do without me. I went on, however, very cheerfully, put his printing-house in order, which had been in great confusion, and brought his hands by degree to mind their business and to do it better. It was an odd thing to find an Oxford scholar in the situation of a bought servant. He was not more than eighteen years of age, and gave me this account of himself, that he was born in Gloucester, educated at grammar school there, had been distinguished among the scholars for some apparent superiority in performing his part when they exhibited plays, belonged to the witty club there, and had written some pieces in prose and verse, which were printed in the Gloucester newspaper. Thence he was sent to Oxford, where he continued about a year, but not well satisfied, wishing of all things to see London, and become a player. At length, receiving his quarterly allowance of fifteen guineas, instead of discharging his debts, he walked out of town, hid his gown in a fruise bush, and footed it to London, where, having no friend to advise him, he fell into bad company, soon spent his guineas, found no means of being introduced among the players, grew necessitous, pawned his clothes, and wanted bread. Walking the street very hungry, and not knowing what to do with himself, a crimp's bill was put into his hand. Begin footnote. A crimp was the agent of a shipping company. Crimps were sometimes employed to decoy men into such service as is here mentioned. End of footnote. Offering immediate entertainment and encouragement to such as would bind themselves to serve in America. He went directly, signed the indenture, was put into the ship, and came over never writing a line to acquaint his friends what was become of him. He was lively, witty, good-natured, and a pleasant companion, but idle, thoughtless, and imprudent to the last degree. John the Irishman soon ran away. With the rest I began to live very agreeably, for they all respected me the more, as they found Keimer incapable of instructing them, and that from me they learned something daily. We never worked on Saturday, that being Keimer's Sabbath, so I had two days for reading. My acquaintance with the ingenious people in the town increased. Keimer himself treated me with great civility and apparent regard, and nothing now made me uneasy but my debt to Vernon, which I was yet unable to pay, being hitherto but a poor economist. He, however, kindly made no demand of it.
our printing-house often wanted sorts and there was no letter founder in america i had seen types cast at james in london but without much attention to the matter however i now contrived a mould made use of the letters we had as punch-ons struck the matrices in lead and thus supplied in a pretty tolerable way all the deficiencies i also engraved several things on occasion i made the ink i was warehouseman and everything and in short quite a factotum but however serviceable i might be i found that my services became every day of less importance as the other hands improved in the business and when keimer paid my second quarter's wages he let me know that he felt them too heavy and thought i should make an abatement he grew by degree less civil put on more of the master frequently found fault was captious and seemed ready for an outbreak i went on nevertheless with a good deal of patience thinking that his encumbered circumstances were partly the cause at length a trifle snapped our connection for the great noise happening near the courthouse i put my head out of the window to see what was the matter keimer being in the street looked up and saw me called out to me in a loud voice and angry tone to mind my business adding some reproachful words that netted me the more for their publicity all of the neighbours who were looking out on the same occasion being witness how i was treated he came up immediately into the printing-house continued the quarrel high words passed on both sides he gave me a quarter's warning we had stipulated expressing a wish that he had not been obliged so long a warning i told him his wish was unnecessary for i would leave him that instant and so taking my hat walked out of doors desiring meredith whom i saw below to take care of some things i left and bring them to my lodgings meredith came accordingly in the evening when we talked my affair over he had conceived great regard for me and was very unwilling that i should leave the house while he remained in it he dissuaded me from returning to my native country which i began to think of he reminded me that keimer was in debt for all he possessed that his creditors began to be uneasy that he kept his shop miserably sold often without profit for ready money and often trusted without keeping accounts that he must therefore fail which would make a vacancy i might profit of i objected my want of money he then let me know how his father had a high opinion of me and from some discourse that had passed between them he was sure he would advance money to set me up if i would enter into partnership with him my time says he will be out with keimer in the spring by that time we may have our press and types in from london i am sensible i am no workman if you like it your skill in the business shall be set against the stock i furnish and we will share the profits equally the provision was agreeable and i consented his father was in town and approved of it the more as he saw i had great influence with his son had prevailed on him to abstain long from dram drinking and he hoped might break him of that wretched habit entirely when we came to be so closely connected i gave an inventory to the father who carried it to a merchant the things were sent for the secret was to be kept until they should arrive and in the meantime i was to get work if i could at the other printing-house but i found no vacancy there and so remained idle a few days while keimer on a prospect of being employed to print some paper money in new jersey which would require cuts and various types that i only could supply and apprehending 
Bradford might engage me and get the job from him, sent me a very civil message, that old friends should not part for a few words, the effect of sudden passion, and wishing me to return. Meredith persuaded me to comply, as it would give more opportunity for his improvement under my daily instruction. So I returned, and we went on more smoothly than for some time before. The New Jersey job was obtained. I contrived a copper-plate press for it, the first that had been seen in the country. I cut several ornaments and checks for the bills. We went together to Burlington, where I executed the whole to satisfaction, and he received so large a sum for the work as to be enabled thereby to keep his head much longer above water. At Burlington I made an acquaintance with many principal people of the province. Several of them had been appointed by the Assembly's Committee to attend the press, and take care that no more bills were printed than the law directed. They were, therefore, by turns, constantly with us, and generally he who attended brought with him a friend or two for company. My mind having been much more improved by reading than Keimer's, I supposed it was for that reason my conversation seemed to be more valued. They had me to their houses, introduced me to their friends, and showed me much civility, while he, though the master, was a little neglected. In truth, he was an odd fish, ignorant of the common life, fond of rudely opposing received opinions, slovenly to extreme dirtiness, enthusiastic in some points of religion, and a little knavish withal. We continued there near three months, and by the time I could reckon among my acquired friends, Judge Allen, Samuel Bushtill, the Secretary of the Province, Isaac Pearson, Joseph Cooper, and several of the Smiths, members of the Assembly, and Isaac Decau, the Surveyor General. The latter was a shrewd, sagacious old man, who told me that he began for himself, when young, by wheeling clay for brickmakers, learned to write after he was of age carried the chain for surveyors who taught him surveying, and he now, by his industry, acquired a good estate, and says he, I foresee that you will soon work this man out of his business, and make a fortune in it at Philadelphia. He had not then the least intimation of my intention to set up there or anywhere. These friends were afterwards of great use to me, as I occasionally was to some of them. They all continued their regard for me as long as they lived. Before I enter upon my public appearance in business, it may be well to let you know the then state of my mind with regard to my principles and morals, that you may see how far those influenced the future events of my life. My parents had early given me religious impressions, and brought me through my childhood piously in the dissenting way. But I was scarce fifteen when, after doubting by turns of several points, as I found them disputed in the different books I read, I began to doubt of Revelation itself. Some books against deism fell into my hands. They were said to be the substance of sermons preached by Boyle's lectures. It happened that they wrought an effect on me quite contrary to what was intended by them, for the arguments of the deists, which were quoted to be refuted, appeared to me much stronger than the refutations. In short, I soon became a thorough deist, my arguments perverted some others, particularly Collins and Ralph, but each of them having afterwards wronged me greatly without the least compunction, and recollecting Keith's conduct toward me, who was another freethinker, and my own towards Vernon and Miss Reed, which at times gave me great trouble, I began to suspect 
that this doctrine, though it might be true, was not very useful. My London pamphlet, which had for its motto these lines of Dryden, Whatever is, is right, though purblind man sees but a part o' the chain, the nearest link, his eyes not carried to the equal beam that poses all above, and from the attributes of God, his infinite wisdom, goodness, and power, concluded that nothing could possibly be wrong in the world, and that vice and virtue were empty distinctions, no such things existed, appeared now not so clever a performance as I once thought it, and I doubted whether some error had not insinuated itself unperceived into my argument, so as to inflict all that follows as is common in metaphysical reasonings. I grew convinced that truth, sincerity, integrity in dealings between man and man were of the utmost importance to the felicity of life, and I formed written resolutions, which still remain in my journal-book, to practice them ever while I lived. Revelation had indeed no weight with me as such, but I entertained an opinion that, though certain actions might not be bad because they were forbidden by it, or good because it commanded them, yet probably these actions might be forbidden because they were bad for us, or commanded because they were beneficial to us, in their own natures, all the circumstances of things being considered, and this persuasion with the kind hand of providence, or some other guardian angel, or accidental favourable circumstances and situations, or altogether preserved me through this dangerous time of youth, and the hazardous situations I was sometimes in among strangers, remote from the eye, and advance of my father, without my willful gross immorality or injustice that might have been expected from my want of religion. I say willfully, because the instances I have mentioned had something of necessity in them. From my youth, inexperience, and the naivety of others, I had therefore a tolerable character to begin the world with. I valued it properly, and determined to perceive it. We had not been long returned to Philadelphia before the new types arrived from London. We settled with Keimer, and left him by his consent before he heard of it. We found a house to hire near the market, and took it, to lessen the rent, which was then but twenty-four pounds a year though I have since known it to let for seventy, we took in Thomas Godfrey, a glazier and his family, who were to pay a considerable part of it to us, and we board with them. We had scarce opened our letters and put our press in order, before George House, an acquaintance of mine, brought a countryman to us whom he had met in the street inquiring for a printer. All our cash was now expended in the variety of particulars we had been obliged to procure, and this countryman's five shillings, being our first fruits, and coming so seasonably, gave me more pleasure than any crown I have ever since earned, and the gratitude I felt toward house has made me often more ready than perhaps I should otherwise have been to assist young beginners. There are croakers in every country, always boding its ruin. Such a one then lived in Philadelphia, a person of note, an elderly man, with a wise look and a very grave manner of speaking. His name was Samuel Mickle. This gentleman, a stranger to me, stopped one day at my door, and asked me if I was the young man who had lately opened a new printing-house. Being answered in the affirmative, he said he was sorry for me, because it was an expensive undertaking, and the expense would be lost, for Philadelphia was a sinking place, 
the people already half bankrupt or near being so, all appearances to the contrary, such as new buildings and the rise of rents, being to his certain knowledge fallacious, for they were in fact among the things that would soon ruin us, and he gave me a detail of misfortunes now existing, or that were soon to exist, that he left me half melancholy, had I known him before I engaged in this business, probably I should never have done it. This man continued to live in this decaying place, and to declaim in the same strain, refusing for many years to buy a house there, because all was going to destruction. And at last I had the pleasure of seeing him give five times as much for one as he might have bought it for when he first began his croaking. I should have mentioned before that in the autumn of the preceding year I had formed most of my ingenious acquaintance into a club of mutual improvement, which was called the Junto. We met on Friday evenings. The rules that I drew up required that every member, in his turn, should produce one or more queries on any point of morals, politics, or natural philosophy to be discussed by the company, and once in three months produce and read an essay of his own writing, on any subject he pleased. Our debates were to be under the direction of a president, and to be conducted in the sincere spirit of inquiry after truth, without fondness for dispute or desire of victory, and to prevent warmth all expressions of positiveness in opinions, or direct contradictions, were after some time made contraband, and prohibited under small pecuniary penalties. The first members were Joseph Brinthnall, a copier of deeds for the Scrivener, a good-natured, friendly, middle-aged man, a great lover of poetry, reading all he could meet with, and writing some that was tolerable, very ingenious in many of the little nicknaves and of sensible conversation. Thomas Godfrey, a self-taught mathematician, great in his way, and afterwards inventor of what is now called Hadley's Quadrant. But he knew little out of his way, and was not a pleasing companion, as like most great mathematicians I have met with, he expected universal precision in everything said, or was forever denying or distinguishing upon trifles, to the disturbance of all conversation. He soon left us. Nicholas Skull, a surveyor, afterwards surveyor-general, who loved books and sometimes made a few verse. William Parson bred a shoemaker, but, loving reader, had acquired a considerable share of mathematics, which he first studied with a view to astrology, that he afterwards laughed at it. He also became surveyor-general. William Moggridge, a joiner, a most exquisite mechanic, and a solid, sensible man. Hugh Meredith, Stephen Potts, and George Webb, I have characterized before. Robert Grace, a young gentleman of some fortune, generous, lively, and witty, a lover of punning and of his friends, and William Coleman, then a merchant's clerk about my age, who had the coolest, clearest head and best heart, and the exactest morals of almost any man I ever met with. He became afterwards a merchant of great note, and one of our provincial judges. Our friendship continued without interruption to his death, upwards of forty years, and the club continued almost as long, and was the best school of philosophy, morality, and politics that then existed in the province, for our queries, which were read the week preceding their discussions, put us upon reading with attention upon the several subjects that we might speak more to the purpose, and thereto 
we acquired better habits of conversation, everything being studied in our rules, which might prevent our distinguishing each other. From hence the long continuance of the club, I shall have frequent occasion to speak further of hereafter. But by giving this account of it here is to show something of the interest I had, every one of these exerting themselves in recommending business to us. Barenthal particularly procured us from the Quakers the printing forty sheets of their history, the rest being to be done by Keimer, and upon this we worked exceedingly hard, for the price was low. It was a folio pro patria size in pica with long printer notes. I composed of it a sheet a day, and Meredith worked it off at press, and it was often eleven at night and sometimes later, before I had finished my distribution for the next day's work. For the little jobs sent in by our other friends now and then put us back, but so determined I was to continue doing a sheet a day of the folio that one night, when having imposed my forms, I thought my day's work over, one of them by accident was broken, and two pages reduced to pie. I immediately distributed and composited all over again before I went to bed, and this industry, visible to our neighbors, began to give us character and credit. Particularly, I was told, that mention being made of the new printing office at the Merchant's Every Night Club. The general opinion was that it must fail, there being already two printers in the place, Keimer and Bradford. But Dr. Baird, whom you and I saw many years after at his native place, St. Andrews in Scotland, gave a contrary opinion. For the industry of that Franklin, says he, is superior to anything I ever saw of the kind. I see him still at work when I go home from club, and he is at work again before his neighbors are out of bed. This struck the rest, and we soon had offers from one of them to supply us with stationery but as yet we did not choose to engage in shop business. I mention this industry the more particularly and the more freely, though it seems to be talking in my own praise, but those of my posterity who shall read it may know the use of that virtue when they see its effects in my favor throughout this relation. George Webb, who had found a female friend that lent him wherewith to purchase his time of Keimer, now came to offer himself as a journeyman to us. We could not then employ him, but I foolishly let him know as a secret that I soon intended to begin a newspaper, and might then have work for him. My hopes of success, as I told him, were founded on this, that the then only newspaper, printed by Bradford, was a paltry thing, wretchedly managed, no way entertaining, and yet was profitable to him. I therefore thought a good paper would scarcely fail of good encouragement. I requested Webb not to mention it, but he told it to Keimer, who immediately, to be beforehand with me, published proposals for printing one himself, on which Webb was to be employed. I resented this, and to counteract them, as I could not yet begin our paper, I wrote several pieces of entertainment for Bradford's paper, under the title of The Busybody, which Brentnall continued some months. But this means the attention of the public was fixed on that paper, and Keimer's proposals, which we burlesqued and ridiculed, were disregarded. He began his paper, however, and after carrying it on three-quarters of a year, 
with at most only ninety subscribers, he offered it to me for a trifle, and I, having been ready some time to go on with it, took it in hand directly, and it proved in a few years extremely profitable to me. I perceive that I am apt to speak in the singular number, though our partnership still continued. The reason may be that, in fact, the whole management of the business lay upon me. Meredith was no compositor, a poor pressman, and seldom sober. My friends lamented my connection with him, but I was to make the best of it. Our first papers made a quite different appearance from any before in the province, a better type and better printed, but some spirited remarks of my writing on the dispute then going on between Governor Burnett and the Massachusetts Assembly struck the principal people, occasioned the paper and the manager of it to be talked of, and in a few weeks brought them all to be our subscribers. The example was followed by many, and our number went on growing continually. This was one of the first good effects of my having learnt a little scribble. Another was that the leading men, seeing a newspaper now in the hands of one who could also handle a pen, thought it convenient to oblige and encourage me. Bradford still printed the votes and laws and other public business. He had printed an address of the house to the governor in a coarse, blundering manner. We reprinted it elegantly and correct and sent out to every member. They were sensible to the difference. It strengthened the hands of our friends in the house, and they voted us their printers for the year ensuing. Among my friends in the house, I must not forget Mr. Hamilton, before mentioned, who was then returned from England, and had a seat in it. He interested himself for me strongly in that instance, as he did in many others afterwards, continuing his patronage until his death. Mr. Vernon about this time put me in mind of the debt I owed him, but did not press me. I wrote him an ingenious letter of acknowledgment, craved his forbearance a little longer, which he allowed me, and as soon as I was able, I paid the principal with interest, and many thanks, so that erratum was in some degree corrected. But now another difficulty came upon me, which I had never the least reason to expect. Mr. Meredith's father, who was to have paid for our printing-house, according to the expectations given me, was able to advance only one hundred pounds currency, which had been paid, and a hundred more was due to the merchant, who grew impatient, and sued us all. We gave bail, but saw that, if the money could not be raised in time, the suit must soon come to judgment and execution, and our hopeful prospects must with us be ruined, as the press and letters must be sold for payment, perhaps at half price. In this distress, two true friends, whose kindness I have never forgotten, nor ever shall forget while I can remember anything, came to me separately, unknown to each other, and without any application from me, offering each of them to advance me all the money that should be necessary to enable me to take the whole business upon myself, if that should be practicable. But they did not like my continuing the partnership with Meredith, who, as they said, was often seen drunk in the streets, and playing at low games in alehouses, much to our discredit. These two friends were William Coleman and Robert Grace. I told them I could not propose a separation, while any prospect remained of the Merediths fulfilling their part of our agreement, because I thought myself under great obligation to them for what they had done, and would do if they could. But if they finally failed in their performance and our partnership must be dissolved, 
I should then think myself at liberty to accept the assistance of my friends. Thus the matter rested for some time, when I said to my partner, Perhaps your father is dissatisfied at the part you have undertaken in this affair of ours, and is unwilling to advance for you and me what he would for you alone. If that is the case, tell me, and I will resign the whole to you and go about my business. No, said he, my father has really been disappointed, and is really unable, and I am unwilling to distress him further. I see this is a business, I am not fit for it. I was bred a farmer, and it was a folly in me to come to town, and put myself at thirty years of age, an apprentice to learn a new trade. Many of our Welch people are going to settle in North Carolina, where land is cheap. I am inclined to go with them and follow my old employment. But you may find friends to assist you, if you will take the debts of the company upon you, return to my father the hundred pounds he has advanced, pay my little personal debts, and give me thirty pounds and a new saddle. I will relinquish the partnership and leave the whole in your hands. I agreed to this proposal. It was drawn up in writing, signed and sealed immediately. I gave him what he demanded, and he went soon after to Carolina, from which he sent me next year two long letters, containing the best account that had been given of that country, the climate, the soil, husbandry, etc., for in those matters he was very judicious. I printed them in the papers, and they gave great satisfaction to the public. As soon as he was gone, I recurred to my two friends and because I would not give an unkind preference to either, I took half of what each had offered and I wanted of one, and half of the other, paid off the company's debts, and went on with the business in my own name, advertising that the partnership was dissolved. I think it was in or about the year 1729. End of chapter 7 The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin Chapter 8 business success, and first public service. About this time there was a cry among the people for more paper money, only fifteen thousand pounds being extant in the province, and that soon to be sunk. The wealthy inhabitants opposed any addition, being against all paper currency, from an apprehension that it would depreciate, as it had done in New England, to the prejudice of all creditors. We had discussed this point in our junta, where I was on the side of an addition, being persuaded that the first small sum struck in 1723 had done much good by increasing the trade, employment, and number of inhabitants in the province, since I now saw all the old houses inhabited, and many new ones building, whereas I remembered well that when I first walked about the streets of Philadelphia, eating my roll, I saw most of the houses on Walnut Street, between Second and Front Streets, with bills on their doors, to be let, and many likewise in Chestnut Street, and other streets, which made me think the inhabitants of the city were deserting it one after another. Our debates possessed me so fully of the subject that I wrote and printed an anonymous pamphlet on it entitled, the nature and necessity of a paper currency. It was well received by the common people in general, but the rich men disliked it, for it increased and strengthened the clamor for more money, and they, happening to have no writers among them that were able to answer it, their opposition slackened, and the point was carried by a majority in the house. My friends there, who conceived I had been of some service, 
thought fit to reward me by employing me in printing the money, a very profitable job, and a great help to me. This was another advantage gained by my being able to write. The utility of this currency became by time and experience so evident as never afterward to be much disputed, so that it grew soon to fifty-five thousand pounds, and in 1739 to eighty thousand pounds, since which it rose during war to upwards of three hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Trade, building, and inhabitants all the while increased, though I now think there are limits beyond which the quantity may be hurtful. Begin footnote. Paper money is a promise to pay its face value in gold or silver. When a state or nation issues more such promises than there is likelihood of its being able to redeem, the paper representing the promises depreciates in value. Before the success of the colonies in the revolution was assured, it took hundreds of dollars of their paper money to buy a pair of boots. End footnote. I soon after obtained, through my friend Hamilton, the printing of the Newcastle paper money, another profitable job, as I then thought it, small things appearing great to those in small circumstances. And these, to me, were really great advantages, as they were great encouragements. He procured for me also the printing of the laws and votes of the government, which continued in my hand as long as I followed the business. I now opened a little stationer's shop. I had in it blanks of all sorts. The correctest that ever appeared among us, being assisted in that by my friend, Brennetnall. I had also paper, parchment, chapman's books, etc. One Whitemarsh, a compositor I had known in London, an excellent workman, now came to me and worked with me continuously and diligently, and I took an apprentice, the son of Aquila Rose. I began gradually to pay off the debt I was under for the printing-house. In order to secure my credit and character as a tradesman, I took care not only to be in reality industrious and frugal, but to avoid all appearances to the contrary. I dressed plainly. I was seen in no places of idle diversion. I never went out a-fishing or shooting. A book, indeed, sometimes debauched me from my work, but that was seldom snug and gave no scandal and to show i was not above my business i sometimes brought home the paper i purchased at the stores through the streets on a wheelbarrow thus being esteemed as an industrious thriving young man and paying duly for what i bought the merchants who imported stationery solicited my custom others proposed supplying me with books i went on swimmingly in the meantime Keimer's credit and business declining daily. He was at last forced to sell his printing-house to satisfy his creditors. He went to Barbados, and there lived some years in very poor circumstances. His apprentice, David Harry, whom I had instructed while I worked with him, set up in his place at Philadelphia, having bought his materials. I was at first apprehensive of a powerful rival in Harry, as his friends were very able and had a good deal of interest. I therefore proposed a partnership to him, which he, fortunately for me, rejected with scorn. He was very proud, dressed like a gentleman, lived expensively, took much diversion and pleasure abroad, ran in debt, and neglected his business, upon which all business left him, 
and finding nothing to do, he followed Keimer to Barbados, taking the printing-house with him. There this apprentice employed his former master as a journeyman. They quarrelled often. Harry went continually behindhand, and at length was forced to sell his types and return to his country work in Pennsylvania. The person that bought them employed Keimer to use them, but in a few years he died. There remained now no competitor with me in Philadelphia, but the old one, Bradford, who was rich and easy, did a little printing now and then by straggling hands, but was not very anxious about the business. However, he kept the post office. It was imagined he had better opportunities of obtaining news. His paper was thought a better distributor of advertisements than mine, and therefore had many more, which was a profitable thing to him, and a disadvantage to me. For though I did indeed receive and send papers by the post, yet the public opinion was otherwise for what i did send was by bribing the writers who took them privately bradford being unkind enough to forbid it which occasioned some resentment on my part and i thought so meanly of him for it that when i afterward came into his situation i took care never to imitate it i had hitherto continued to board with godfrey who lived in part of my house with his wife and children and had one side of the shop for his glazer's business, though he worked little, being always absorbed in his mathematics. Mrs. Godfrey projected a match for me with a relation's daughter, took opportunities of bringing us often together, till a serious courtship on my part ensued, the girl being in herself very deserving. The old folks encouraged me by continual invitations to supper, and by leaving us together, till at length it was time to explain. Mrs. Godfrey managed our little treaty. I let her know that I expected as much money with their daughter as would pay off my remaining debt for the printing-house, which I believe was not then above a hundred pounds. She brought me word they had no such sum to spare. I said they might mortgage their house in the loan office. The answer to this, after some days, was that they did not approve the match, that on inquiry of Bradford they had been informed the printing business was not a profitable one, that types would soon be worn out and more wanted, that S. Keimer and D. Harry had failed one after the other, and I should probably soon follow them, and therefore I was forbidden the house and the daughter shut up. Whether this was a real change of sentiment, or only artifice, on a supposition of our being too far engaged in affection to retract, and therefore that we should steal a marriage, which would leave them at liberty to give or withhold what they pleased, I know not, but I suspect the latter, resented it, and went no more. Mrs. Godfrey brought me afterwards some more favourable accounts of their disposition, and would have drawn me on again, but I declared absolutely my resolution to have nothing more to do with that family. This was resented by the Godfreys. We differed, and they removed, leaving me the whole house, and I resolved to take no more inmates. But this affair having turned my thoughts to marriage, I looked round me and made overtures of acquaintances in other places, but soon found that, the business of a printer being generally thought a poor one, I was not to expect money with a wife, unless with such a one as I should not otherwise think agreeable. 
a friendly correspondence as neighbours and old acquaintances had continued between me and mrs reed's family who all had a regard for me from the time of my first lodging in their house i was often invited there and consulted in their affairs wherein i sometimes was of service i pitied poor miss reed's unfortunate situation who was generally dejected seldom cheerful and avoided company i considered my giddiness and inconsistency when in london as a great degree the cause of her unhappiness though the mother was good enough to think the fault more her own than mine as she had prevented our marrying before i went thither and persuaded the other match in my absence our mutual affection was revived but there was now great objections to our union the match was indeed looked upon as invalid a preceding wife being said to be living in england but this could not easily be proved because of the distance and though there was a report of his death it was not certain then though it should be true he had left many debts which his successor might be called upon to pay we ventured however over all these difficulties and i took her to wife september first seventeen thirty none of the inconveniences happened that we had apprehended she proved a good and faithful helpmate assisted me much by attending the shop we throve together and have ever mutually endeavoured to make each other happy thus i corrected that great erratum as well as i could begin footnote mrs franklin survived her marriage over forty years franklin's correspondence abounds with evidence that their union was a happy one we are grown old together and if she has any faults i am so used to them that i don't perceive them the following is a stanza from one of franklin's own songs written for the junta of their chloe's and phyllis's poets may prate i sing my plain country joan these twelve years my wife still the joy of my life blessed day that i made her my own End of footnote. about this time our club meeting not at a tavern but in a little room of mr grace's set apart for that purpose a proposition was made by me that since our books were often referred to in our disquisitions upon the queries it might be convenient for us to have them together where we met that upon occasion they might be consulted and by thus clubbing our books to a common library we should while we liked to keep them together have each of us the advantage of using the books of all the other members which would be nearly as beneficial as if we each owned the whole it was liked and agreed to and we filled one end of the room with such books as we could best spare the number was not so great as we expected and though they had been of great use yet some inconveniences occurring for want of due care of them the collection after about a year was separated and each took his books home again and now i set on foot my first project of a public nature that for a subscription library i drew up the proposals got them put into the form by our great scrivener brockton and by the help of my friends in the junta procured fifty subscribers of forty shillings each to begin with and ten shillings a year for fifty years the term our company was to continue we afterwards obtained a charter the company being increased to one hundred 
thus the mother of all the North American subscription libraries, now so numerous. It is become a great thing itself, and continually increasing. These libraries have improved the general conversation of the Americans, made the common tradesmen and farmers as intelligent and most gentlemen from other countries, and perhaps have contributed in some degree to the stand so generally made through the colonies in defense of their privileges. Thus far was written with the intention expressed in the beginning, and therefore contains several little family anecdotes of no importance to others. What follows was written many years after, in compliance with the advice contained in these letters, and accordingly intends for the public. The affairs of the revolution occasioned the interruption. Begin footnote. Here the first part of the autobiography, written at Twyford in 1771, ends. The second part, which follows, was written in Passy in 1784. After this memorandum, Franklin inserted letters from Abel James and Benjamin Vaughan, urging him to continue his autobiography. End of footnote. It is some time since I received the above letters, but I have been too busy till now to think of complying with the request they contain. It might too be much better done if I were at home among my papers, which would aid my memory, and help to ascertain dates. But my return being uncertain, and having just now a little leisure, I will endeavour to recollect and write what I can. If I live to get home, it may be corrected and improved. Not having any copy here of what is already written, I know not whether an account is given of the means I used to establish the Philadelphia Public Library, which, from a small beginning, is now become so considerable, though I remember to have come down to near the time of that transaction. I will therefore begin here an account of it which may be struck out if found to have been already given. At the time I established myself in Philadelphia, there was not a good bookseller's shop in any of the colonies to the southward of Boston. In New York and Philadelphia the printers were indeed stationers. They sold only paper, etc., almanacs, ballads, and a few common school books. Those who loved reading were obliged to send for their books from England, and members of the junta had each a few. We had left the alehouse where we first met, and hired a room to hold our club in. I proposed that we should all of us bring our books to that room, where they would not only be ready to consult in our conferences, but become a common benefit, each of us being at liberty to borrow such as he wished to read at home. This was accordingly done, and for some time contended us. Finding the advantage of this little collection, I proposed to render the benefit from books more common by commencing a public subscription library. I drew a sketch from the plan and rules that would be necessary, and got a skilful conveyancer, Mr. Charles Brockton, to put the whole in form of articles of agreement to be subscribed, by which each subscriber engaged to pay a certain sum down for the first purchase of books and an annual contribution for increasing them. So few were the readers at that time in Philadelphia, and the majority of us so poor, that I was not able, with great industry, to find more than fifty persons, mostly young tradesmen, willing to pay down for this purpose forty shillings each, and ten shillings per annum. On this little fund we began. The books were imported, the library was opened one day in the week for lending to the subscribers, 
on their promissory notes to pay double the value if not duly returned the institution soon manifested its utility was imitated by other towns and in other provinces the libraries were augmented by donations reading became fashionable and our people having no public amusements to divert their attention from study became better acquainted with books and in a few years were observed by strangers to be better instructed and more intelligent than people of the same rank generally are in other countries when we were about to sign the above-mentioned articles which were to be binding on us our heirs etc for fifty years mr brockton the scrivener said to us you are young men but it is scarcely probable that any of you will live to see the expiration of the term fixed in this instrument a number of us however are yet living but the instrument was after a few years rendered null by a charter that incorporated and gave perpetuity to the company the objections and reluctances i met with in soliciting the subscriptions made me soon feel the impropriety of presenting oneself as the proposer of any useful project that might be supposed to raise one's reputation in the smallest degree above that of one's neighbours when one has need of their assistance to accomplish that project i therefore put myself as much as i could out of sight and stated it was a scheme of a number of friends who requested me to go about and propose it to such as they thought lovers of reading in this way my affair went on more smoothly and i ever after practised it on such occasions and from my frequent successes can heartily recommend it the present little sacrifice of your vanity will afterward be amply repaid if it remains a while uncertain to whom the merit belongs someone more vain than yourself will be encouraged to claim it and then even envy will be disposed to you justice by plucking those assumed feathers and restoring them to their right owner the library afforded me the means of improvement by constant study for which i set apart an hour or two each day and thus repaired in some degree the loss of the learned education my father once intended for me reading was the only amusement i allowed myself i spent no time in taverns games or frolics of any kind and my industry and my business continued as indefatigable as it was necessary i was indebted for my printing-house i had a young family coming on to be educated and i had to contend with for business two printers who were established in the place before me my circumstances however grew daily easier my original habits of frugality continued and my father having among his instructions to me when a boy frequently repeated a proverb of solomon seest thou a man diligent in his calling he shall stand before kings he shall not stand before mean men i from thence considered industry as a means of obtaining wealth and distinction which encouraged me though i did not think that i should ever literally stand before kings which however has since happened for i have stood before five and even had the honour of sitting down with one the king of denmark to dinner we have an english proverb that says he that would thrive must ask his wife it was lucky for me that i had one as much disposed to industry and frugality as myself 
she assisted me cheerfully in my business folding and stitching pamphlets tending shop purchasing old linen rags for the paper makers etc etc we kept no idle servants our table was plain and simple our furniture of the cheapest for instance my breakfast was a long time break and milk no tea and i ate it out of a twopenny earthen porringer with a pewter spoon but mark how luxury will enter families and make a progress in spite of principle being called one morning to breakfast i found it in a china bowl with a spoon of silver they had been bought for me without my knowledge by my wife and it cost her the enormous sum of three and twenty shillings for which she had no excuse or apology to make but that she thought her husband deserved a silver spoon and a china bowl as well as any of his neighbours this was the first appearance of plate and china in our house which afterward in a course of years as our wealth increased augmented gradually to several hundred pounds in value i had been religiously educated as a presbyterian and thought some of the dogmas of that persuasion such as the eternal decrees of god election reprobation etc appeared to me unintelligible others doubtful and i early absented myself from the public assemblies of the sect sunday being my study day i never was without some religious principles i never doubted for instance the existence of the deity that he made the world and governed it by his providence that the most acceptable service of god was the doing good to man that our souls are immortal and that all crime will be punished and virtue rewarded either here or hereafter these i esteemed the essentials of every religion and being to be found in all the religions we had in our country i respected them all though with different degrees of respect as i found them more or less mixed with other articles which without any tendency to inspire promote or confirm morality served principally to divide us and made us unfriendly to each other this respect to all with an opinion that the worst had some good effects induced me to avoid all discourse that might tend to lessen the good opinion another might have of his own religion and as our province increased in people and new places of worship were continually wanted and generally erected by voluntary contribution my might for such purpose whatever might be the sect was never refused though i seldom attended any public worship i had still an opinion of its propriety and its utility when rightly conducted and i regularly paid my annual subscription for the support of the only presbyterian minister or meeting we had in philadelphia he used to visit me sometimes as a friend and admonished me to attend his administrations and i was now and then prevailed on to do so once for five sundays successively had he been in my opinion a good preacher perhaps i might have continued notwithstanding the occasion i had for the sunday's leisure in my course of study but his discourses were chiefly either polemic arguments or explanations of the particular doctrines of our sect and were all to me very dry uninteresting and unedifying since not a single moral principle was inculcated or enforced 
their aim seeming to be rather to make us Presbyterians than good citizens. At length he took for his text that verse of the fourth chapter of Philippians, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, or of good report, if there be any virtue or any praise, think on these things. And I imagined in a sermon on such a text, he would not miss of having some morality. But he confined himself to the five points only, as meant by the apostle, viz. 1. Keeping hold of the Sabbath day. 2. Being diligent in reading the Holy Scriptures. 3. Attending duly the public worship. 4. Partaking of the sacrament. 5. Paying a due respect to God's ministers. These might be all good things, but as they were not the kind of good things that I expected from that text, I despaired of ever meeting with them from any other, was disgusted, and attended his preaching no more. I had some years before composed a little liturgy, or form of prayer, for my own private use, viz. in 1728, entitled Articles of Belief and Act of Religion. I returned to the use of this, and went no more to the public assemblies. My conduct might be blamable, but I leave it, without attempting further to excuse it, my present purpose being to relate facts, and not to make apologies for them. End of chapter 8「The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin」Chapter 9 Plan for Attaining Moral Perfection It was about this time I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. As I knew, or thought I knew, what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other, but I soon found that I had undertaken a task more difficult than I had imagined. While my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. Habit took the advantage of inattention. Inclination was sometimes too strong for reason. I concluded at length that the mere speculative conviction that it was our interest to be completely virtuous was not sufficient to prevent our slipping, and that the contrary habits must be broken and good ones acquired and established before we can have any dependence on a steady, uniform resistitude of conduct. For this purpose I therefore contrived the following method. In the various enumerations of the moral virtues I had met with in my reading, I found the catalogue more or less numerous, as different writers included more or fewer ideas under the same name. Temperance, for example, was by some confined to eating and drinking, while by others it was extended to mean the moderating every other pleasure, appetite, inclination, or passion bodily or mental, even to our avarice and ambition. I proposed to myself, for the sake of clearness, to use rather more names, and fewer ideas annexed to each, than a few names with more ideas, and I included under thirteen names of virtues all that at that time occurred to me as necessary or desirable, and I annexed to each a short precept, 
which fully expressed the extent I gave to its meaning. These names of virtues, with their precepts, were 1. Temperance. Eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation. 2. Silence. Speak not but what may benefit others or yourself. Avoid trifling conversation. 3. Order. Let all your things have their place. Let each part of your business have its time. 4. Resolution. Resolve to perform what you ought. Perform without fail what you resolve. 5. Frugality. Make no expense but to do good to others or yourself, i.e., waste nothing. 6. Industry. Lose no time. Be always employed in something useful. Cut off all unnecessary actions. 7. Sincerity. Use no hurtful deceit. Think innocently and justly. And, if you speak, speak accordingly. 8. Justice. Wrong done by doing injuries or omitting the benefits that are your duty. 9. Moderation. Avoid extremes. Forbear resenting injuries so much as you think they deserve. 10. Cleanliness. Tolerate no uncleanliness in body, clothes, or habitation. 11. Tranquility. Be not disturbed at trifles or at accidents common or unavoidable. 12. Chastity. 13. Humility. Imitate Jesus and Socrates. My intention being to acquire the habitude of all these virtues, I judged it would be well not to distract my attention by attempting the whole at once, but to fix it on one of them at a time, and when I should be master of that, then to proceed to another, and so on, till I should have gone through the thirteen, and, as the previous acquisition of some might facilitate the acquisition of certain others, I arranged them with that in view, as they stand above. Temperance first, as it tends to produce that coolness and clearness of head which is so necessary when constant vigilance has to be kept up and guard maintained against the unremitting attraction of ancient habits and the force of perpetual temptations. This being acquired and established, silence would be more easy and my desire being to gain knowledge at the same time that I improved in virtue, and considering that in conversation it was obtained rather by the use of the ears than of the tongue, and therefore wishing to break the habit I was getting into of prattling, punning, and joking, which only made me acceptable to trifling company, I gave silence the second place. This and the next order I expected would allow me more time for attending to my project and my studies. Resolution, once become habitual, would keep me firm in my endeavors to obtain all the subsequent virtues. Frugality and industry, freeing me from my remaining debt and producing affluence and independence, would make more easily the practice of sincerity and justice, etc., etc. Conceiving, then, that agreeably to the advice of Pythagoras, in his golden verses, daily examination would be necessary, I contrived the following method for conducting that examination. I made a little book, in which I allotted a page for each of the virtues. I ruled each page with red ink, 
so as to have seven columns, one for each day of the week, marking each column with a letter for the day. I crossed these columns with thirteen red lines, marking the beginning of each line with the first letter of one of the virtues, on which line, and in its proper column, I might mark, by a little black spot, every fault I found upon examination to have been committed respecting that virtue upon that day. Footnote. Pythagoras was a famous Greek philosopher who lived about 582 to 500 B.C. The golden verses here ascribed to him are probably of later origin. The time which he recommends for this work is about even or bedtime, that we may conclude the action of the day with the judgment of conscience, making the examination of our convention an evening song to God. End of footnote. I determined to give a week's strict attention to each of the virtues successively. Thus, in the first week, my great guard was to avoid every the least offence against temperance, leaving the other virtues to their ordinary chance, only marking every evening the faults of the day. Thus, if in the first week I could keep my first line marked T, clear of spots, I supposed the habit of that virtue so much strengthened, and its opposite weakened, that I might venture extending my attention to include the next, and for the following week keep both lines clear of spots. Proceeding thus to the last, I would go through a course complete in thirteen weeks, and four courses in a year. And like him who, having a garden to weed, does not attempt to eradicate all the bad herbs at once, which would exceed his reach and his strength, but works on one of the beds at a time, and having accomplished the first, proceeds to a second, so I should have, I hoped, the encouraging pleasure of seeing on my pages the progress I made in virtue by clearing successively my lines of their spots, till, at the end, by a number of courses, I should be happy in viewing a clean book after a thirteen weeks daily examination. This my little book had for its motto these lines from Addison's Cato. Here will I hold, if there is a power above us, and that there is, all nature cries aloud, through all her works, he must delight in virtue, and that which he delights in must be happy. Another from Cicero. O philosophy, guide of life, O searcher out of virtue and exterminator of vice, one day spent well and in accordance with thy precepts is worth an immortality of sin. Tusculian Inquiries, Book 5 Another of the Proverbs of Solomon, speaking of wisdom or virtue, Length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. And conceiving God to be the fountain of wisdom, I thought it right and necessary to solicit his assistance for obtaining it to this end. I formed the following little prayer, which was prefixed to my tables of examination for daily use. O powerful goodness, bountiful Father, merciful guide, increase in me that wisdom which discovers my truest interest, Strengthen my resolution to perform what that wisdom dictates, 
accept my kind offices to thy other children as the only return in my power for thy continual favours to me i used also sometimes a little prayer which i took from thompson's poems viz father of light and life thou good supreme o teach me what is good teach me thyself save me from folly vanity and vice from every low pursuit and fill my soul with knowledge conscious peace and virtue pure sacred substantial never fading bliss the precept of order requiring that every part of my business should have its allotted time one page of my little book contained the following scheme employed for the twenty-four hours of a natural day five rise wash and address six powerful goodness contrive day's business and take the resolution of the day seven prosecute the present study and breakfast the morning question what good shall i do this day nine work twelve noon read or overlook my accounts and dine three work evening six put things in their places supper music or diversion or conversation evening question what good have i done to-day nine examination of the day night ten sleep i entered upon the execution of this plan for self-examination and continued it with occasional intermissions for some time i was surprised to find myself so much fuller of faults than i had imagined but i had the satisfaction of seeing them diminish to avoid the trouble of renewing now and then my little book which by scraping out the marks on the paper of old faults to make room for new ones in a new course became full of holes i transferred my tables and precepts to the ivory leaves of a memorandum book on which the lines were drawn with red ink that made a durable stain and on those lines i marked my faults with a black lead pencil which marks i could easily wipe out with a wet sponge after a while i went through one course only in a year and afterward only one in several years till at length i omitted them entirely being employed in voyages and business abroad with a multiplicity of affairs that interfered but i always carried my little book with me my scheme of order gave me the most trouble and i found that though it might be practicable where a man's business was such as to leave him the disposition of his time that of a journeyman printer for instance it was not possible to be exactly observed by a master who must mix with the world and often receive people of business at their own hour order too with regard to places for things papers etc i found extremely difficult to acquire i had not been early accustomed to it and having an exceeding good memory i was not so sensible of the inconvenience attending want of method this article therefore cost me so much painful attention and my faults in it vexed me so much and i made so little progress in amendment and had such frequent relapses that i was almost ready to give up the attempt and content myself with a faulty character in that respect like the man who in buying an axe for a smith my neighbor desired to have the whole of its surface as bright as the edge the smith consented to grind it bright for him if he would turn the wheel he turned while the smith pressed the broad face of the axe 
hard and heavily on the stone, which made the turning of it very fatiguing. The man came every now and then from the wheel to see how the work went on, and at length would take his axe as it was without further grinding. No, said the smith, turn on, turn on, we shall have it bright by and by, as yet it is only speckled. Yes, says the man, but I think I like a speckled axe best and I believe this may have been the case with many who, having, for want of some such means as I employed, found the difficulty of obtaining good and breaking bad habits in other points of vice and virtue, have given up the struggle and concluded that a speckled axe was best. For something that pretended to be reason was every now and then suggested to me that such extreme nicety as I exacted of myself might be a kind of foppery in morals, which, if it were known, it would make me ridiculous, that a perfect character might be attended with the inconvenience of being envied and hated, and that a benevolent man should allow a few faults in himself to keep his friends in continence. Footnote. Professor McMaster tells us that when Franklin was American agent in France, his lack of business order was a source of annoyance to his colleagues and friends. Strangers who came to see him were amazed to behold papers of the greatest importance scattered in the most careless way over the table and floor. And footnote. In truth I found myself incorrigible with respect to order, and now I am grown old and my memory bad, I feel very sensibly the want of it. But on the whole, though, I never arrived at the perfection I had been so ambitious of obtaining, but fell far short of it. Yet I was, by the endeavour, a better and a happier man than I otherwise should have been if I had not attempted it, as those who aim at perfect writing by imitating the engraved copies, though they never reach the wished-for excellence of those copies, their hand is mended by the endeavour, and is tolerable while it continues fair and legible. It may be well my posterity should be informed that to this little artifice with the blessing of God, their ancestor owed the constant felicity of his life down to his seventy-ninth year, in which this is written, What reverses may attend the remainder is in the hand of providence, but if they arrive, the reflection on past happiness enjoyed ought to help his bearing them with more resignation. To temperance he ascribes his long-continued health and what is still left to him of a good constitution, to industry and frugality, the early easiness of his circumstances and acquisition of his fortune, with all that knowledge that enabled him to be a useful citizen, and obtain for him some degree of reputation among the learned, sincerity and justice, the confidence of his country, and the honourable employs it conferred upon him, and to the joint influence of the whole mass of the virtues, even in the imperfect state he was able to acquire them, all that evenness of temper and that cheerfulness in conversation which makes his company still sought for, and agreeable even to his younger acquaintance. I hope, therefore, that some of my descendants may follow the example and reap the benefit. Footnote. While there can be no question that Franklin's moral improvement and happiness were due to the practice of these virtues, yet most people will agree 
that we shall have to go back of his plan for the impelling motive to a virtuous life. Franklin's own suggestion that the scheme smacks of foolery in morals seems justified. Woodrow Wilson well puts it, Men do not take fire from such thoughts unless something deeper, which is missing here, shines through them. What may have seemed to the eighteenth century a system of morals seems to us nothing more vital than a collection of the precepts of good sense and sound conduct. What redeems it from pettiness in this book is the scope of power and of usefulness to be seen in Franklin himself, who set these standards up in all seriousness and candor for his own life. See Galatians chapter 5 for the Christian plan of moral perfection. End footnote. It will be remarked that though my scheme was not wholly without religion, there was in it no mark of any of the distinguishing tenets of any particular sect. I had purposely avoided them, for being fully persuaded of the utility and excellency of my method, and that it might be serviceable to people in all religions, and intending some time or other to publish it, I would not have anything in it that should prejudice any one of any sect against it. I proposed writing a little comment on its virtue, in which I would have shown the advantages of possessing it, and the mischiefs attending to its opposite vice, and I should have called my little book The Art of Virtue, because it would have shown the means and manner of obtaining virtue, which would have distinguished it from the mere exhortation to be good, that does not instruct and indicate the means, but is like the apostle's man of verbal charity, who only without showing to the naked and hungry how or where they might clothe or victual, extorted them to be fed and clothed. James chapter 2 verses 15 and 16 Footnote Nothing so likely to make a man's fortune as virtue. End footnote But it so happened that my intention of writing and publishing this comment was never fulfilled. I did indeed from time to time put down short hints of the sentiments, reasonings, etc., to be made use of in it, some of which I have still by me, but the necessary close attention to private business in the earlier part of my life, and public business sense, have occasioned my postponing it, for it being connected to my mind with a great and extensive project that required the whole man to execute, and which an unforeseen succession of employees prevented my attending to, it has hitherto remained unfinished. In this piece it was my design to explain and enforce this doctrine, that vicious actions are not hurtful because they are forbidden, but forbidden because they are hurtful. The nature of man alone considered that it was therefore everyone's interest to be virtuous, who wished to be happy, even in this world, and I should, from this circumstance, there being always in the world a number of rich merchants, nobility, states, and princes, who have need of honest instruments for the management of their affairs, and such being so rare, have endeavored to convince young persons that no qualities were so likely to make a poor man's fortune as those of probity and integrity. My list of virtues contained at first but twelve, but a Quaker friend, having kindly informed me that I was generally thought proud, 
that my pride showed itself frequently in conversation, that I was not content in being in the right when discussing any point, but was overbearing and rather insolent, of which he convinced me by mentioning several instances, I determined, endeavouring to cure myself, if I could, of this vice or folly among the rest, and I added humility to my list, giving an extensive meaning to the word. I cannot boast of much success in acquiring the reality of this virtue, but I had a good deal with regard to the appearance of it. I made it a rule to forbear all direct contradictions to the sentiments of others, and all positive assertion of my own. I even forbid myself agreeably to the old laws of Arjunto, the use of every word or expression in the language that imported a fixed opinion, such as, certainly, undoubtedly, etc., and I adopted instead of them, I conceive, I apprehend, or I imagine, a thing to be so-and-so, or it so appears to me at present. When another asserted something that I thought an error, I denied myself the pleasure of contradicting him abruptly, and of showing immediately some absurdity in his proposition, and in answering I began by observing that in certain cases or circumstances his opinion would be right, but in the present case there appeared or seemed to me some differences, etc. I soon found the advantage of this change in my manner. The conversations I engaged in went more pleasantly. The modest way in which I proposed my opinions procured them a readier reception and less contradictions. I had less mortifications when I was found to be in the wrong, and I more easily prevailed with others to give up their mistakes and join with me when I happened to be in the right. And this mode, which I am first put on with some violence to natural inclination, became at length so easy and so habitual to me that perhaps for these fifty years past no one has ever heard a dogmatical expression escape me, and to this habit, after my character of integrity, I think it principally owing that I had early so much weight with my fellow citizens when I proposed new institutions or alterations in the old, and so much influence in public councils when I became a member, for I was but a bad speaker, never eloquent, subject to much hesitation in my choice of words, hardly correct in language, and yet I generally carried my points. In reality, there is, perhaps, no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive, and will every now and then peep out and show itself. You will see it, perhaps, often in this history, for even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. Thus far written at Passé, 1784. Footnote. I am now about to write at home, August, 1788, but cannot have the help expected from my papers, many of them being lost in the war. I have, however, found the following. This is a marginal memorandum. End of footnote. Having mentioned a great and extensive project which I had conceived, it seemed proper that some account should be here given of that project and its object. Its first rise in my mind appeared in the following little paper, accidentally preserved, viz. Observations on my reading history, in library, 
May 19, 1731. That the great affairs of the world, the wars, revolutions, etc., are carried on and effected by parties. That the view of these parties is their present general interest, or what they take to be such. That the different views of these different parties occasion all confusion. That while a party is carried on a general design, each man has his particular private interests in view. That as soon as a party has gained its general point, each member becomes intent upon his particular interest, which, thwarting others, breaks that party into divisions and occasions more confusion. That few in public affairs act from a mere view of good of their country, whatever they may pretend, and though their actions bring real good to their country, yet men primarily considered that their own and their country's interest was united, and did not act from a principle of benevolence that few still, in public affairs, act with a view to the good of mankind. There seems to me at present to be great occasion for raising a united party for virtue, by forming the virtuous and good men of all nations into a regular body to be governed by suitable good and wise rules, which good and wise men may probably be more unanimous in their obedience to than common people are to common laws. I at present think that whoever attempts this aright, and is well qualified, cannot fail of pleasing God, and of meeting with success. B. F. Revolving this project in my mind, as to be undertaken hereafter when my circumstances should afford me the necessary leisure, I put down from time to time on pieces of paper such thoughts as occurred to me respecting it. Most of these are lost but I found one purporting to be the substance of an intended creed, containing, as I thought, the essentials of every known religion, and being free of everything that might shock the professors of any religion. I expressed in these words, viz., that there is one God who made all things, that he governs the world by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped by adoration, prayer, and thanksgiving, but that the most acceptable service of God is doing good to man that the soul is immortal, and that God will certainly reward virtue and punish vice, either here or hereafter. My ideas at that time were, that the sect should be begun and spread at first among young and single men only, that each person to be initiated should not only declare his assent to such creed, but should have exercised himself with the thirteen weeks examination and practice of the virtues, as in the before-mentioned model that the existence of such a society should be kept a secret till it was become considerable to prevent solicitations for the admission of improper persons, but that the members should each of them search among his acquaintances for ingenious, well-disposed youths, to whom, with prudent caution, the scheme should be gradually communicated, that the members should engage to afford their advice, assistance, and support to each other in promoting one another's interests businesses, and advancement in life, that for distinction we should be called the Society of the Free and Easy, free as being by the general practice and habit of the virtues, free from the dominion of vice, and particularly by the practice of industry and frugality, free from debt, which exposes a man to confinement, and a species of slavery to his creditors. 
This is as much as I can now recollect of the project, except that I communicated it in parts to two young men who adopted it with some enthusiasm, but my then narrow circumstances and the necessity I was under of sticking close to my business occasioned my postponing the further prosecution of it at that time, and my multifarious occupations, public and private, induced me to continue postponing, so that it has been omitted till I have no longer strength or activity left sufficient for such an enterprise, though I am still of opinion that it was a practicable scheme and might have been very useful by forming a great number of good citizens, and I was not discouraged by the seeming magnitude of the undertaking, as I have always thought that one man of tolerable abilities may work great changes and accomplish great affairs among mankind if he first forms a good plan and, cutting off all amusements or other employments that would divert his attention, makes the execution of that same plan his sole study and business. End of chapter 9 The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin Chapter 10 Poor Richard's Almanac and Other Activities In 1732 I first published my almanac under the name of Richard Saunders. It was continued by me about twenty-five years, commonly called Poor Richard's Almanac. I endeavored to make it both entertaining and useful, and it accordingly came to be in such demand that I reaped considerable profit from it, vending annually near ten thousand, and observing that it was generally read, scarce any neighborhood in the province being without it. I considered it as a proper vehicle for conveying instruction among the common people, who bought scarcely any other books. I therefore filled all the little spaces that occurred between the remarkable days in the calendar with proverbial sentences, chiefly such as inculcated industry and frugality as the means of procuring wealth, and thereby securing virtue, it being more difficult for a man in want to act always honestly, as, to use here one of those proverbs, it is hard for an empty sack to stand upright. Begin footnote. The almanac at that time was a kind of periodical as well as a guide to natural phenomena and the weather. Franklin took his title from Poor Robin, a famous English almanac, and from Richard Saunders, a well-known almanac publisher. End of footnote. These proverbs, which contained the wisdom of many ages and nations, I assembled and formed into a connected discourse prefixed to the almanac of 1757 as the harangue of a wise old man, to the people attending an auction. The bringing all these scattered counsels thus into a focus enabled them to make greater impression. The piece being universally approved was copied in all the newspapers of the continent, reprinted in Britain on a broadside to be struck up in houses. Two translations were made of it in French, and great numbers bought by the clergy and gentry to distribute gratis among their poor parishioners and tenants. In Pennsylvania, as it discouraged useless expense in foreign superfluities, 
some thought it had its share of influence in producing that growing plenty of money which was observable for several years after its publication i considered my newspaper also as another means of communicating instruction and in that view frequently reprinted in it extracts from the spectator and other moral writers and sometimes published little pieces of my own which had been first composed for reading in our junto of these are a socratic dialogue tending to prove that whatever might be his parts and abilities a vicious man could not properly be called a man of sense and a discourse on self-denial showing that virtue was not secure till its practice became a habitude and was free from the opposition of contrary inclinations these may be found in the papers about the beginning of seventeen thirty five in the conduct of my newspaper i carefully excluded all libelling and personal abuse which is of late years become so disgraceful to our country whenever i was solicited to insert anything of that kind and the writers pleaded as they generally did the liberty of the press and that a newspaper was like a stage-coach in which any one who could pay had a right to a place my answer was that i would print the piece separately if desired and the author might have as many copies as he pleased to distribute himself but that i would not take upon me to spread his detraction and that having contracted with my subscribers to furnish them with what might be either useful or entertaining i could not fill their papers with private altercations in which they had no concern without doing them manifest injustice now many of our printers make no scruple of gratifying the malice of individuals by false accusations of the fairest characters among ourselves augmenting animosity even to the producing of duels and are moreover so indiscreet as to print scurrilous reflections on the government of neighboring states and even on the conduct of our best national allies which may be attended with the most pernicious consequences these things i mention as a caution to young printers and that they may be encouraged not to pollute their presses and disgrace their profession by such infamous practices but refuse steadily as they may see by my example that such a course of conduct will not on the whole be injurious to their interests in seventeen thirty three i sent one of my journeymen to charleston south carolina where a printer was wanting i furnished him with a press and letters on an agreement of partnership by which i was to receive one-third of the profits of the business paying one-third of the expense he was a man of learning and honest but ignorant in matters of account and though he sometimes made me remittances i could get no account from him nor any satisfactory state of our partnership while he lived on his decease the business was continued by his widow who being born and bred in holland where as i have been informed the knowledge of accounts makes a part of female education she not only sent me as clear a state as she could find of the transactions past but continued to account with the greatest regularity and exactness every quarter afterwards 
and managed the business with such success that she not only brought up reputably a family of children, but at the expiration of the term was able to purchase of me the printing-house and establish her son in it. I mention this affair chiefly for the sake of recommending that branch of education for our young females as likely to be of more use to them and their children in case of widowhood than either music or dancing by preserving them from losses by imposition of crafty men and enabling them to continue perhaps a profitable mercantile house with established correspondence till a son is grown up fit to undertake and go on with it to the lasting advantage and enriching of the family about the year seventeen thirty four there arrived among us from ireland a young presbyterian preacher named hempfill who delivered with a good voice and apparently extemporare most excellent discourses which drew together considerable numbers of different persuasions who joined in admiring them among the rest i became one of his constant hearers his sermons pleasing me as they had little of the dogmatical kind but inculcated strongly the practice of virtue or what in the religious style are called good works those however of our congregation who considered themselves as orthodox presbyterians disapproved his doctrine and were joined by most of the old clergy who arraigned him of heterodoxy before the synod in order to have him silenced i became his zealous partisan and contributed all i could to raise a party in his favour and we combated for him a while with such hopes of success there was much scribbling pro and con upon the occasion and finding that though an elegant preacher he was but a poor writer i lent him my pen and wrote for him two or three pamphlets and one piece in the gazette of april seventeen thirty five those pamphlets as is generally the case with controversial writings though eagerly read at the time were soon out of vogue and i question whether a single copy of them now exists during the contest an unlucky occurrence hurt his cause exceedingly one of our adversaries having heard him preach a sermon that was much admired thought he had somewhere read the sermon before or at least a part of it on search he found the part quoted at length in one of the british reviews from a discourse of dr foster's this detection gave many of our party disgust who accordingly abandoned his cause and occasioned our more speedy discomfiture in the synod I stuck by him, however, as I rather approved his giving us good sermons composed by others than bad ones of his own manufacture, though the latter was the practice of our common teachers. He afterward acknowledged to me that none of those he preached were his own, adding that his memory was such as enabled him to retain and repeat any sermon after one reading only. On our defeat he left us in search elsewhere of better fortune and I quitted the congregation, never joining it after, though I continued many years my subscription for the support of its ministers. I had begun in 1733 to study languages. I soon made myself so much a master of the French as to be able to read the books with ease. I then undertook the Italian. An acquaintance who was also learning it used often to tempt me to play chess with him. 
Finding this took up too much of the time I had to spare for study, I at length refused to play any more, unless on this condition, that the victor in every game should have a right to impose a task, either in parts of the grammar to be got by heart, or in translations, etc., which tasks the vanquished was to perform upon honour before our next meeting. As we played pretty equally, we thus beat one another into that language. I afterwards, with a little painstaking, acquired as much of the Spanish as to read their books also. I have already mentioned that I had only one year's instruction in a Latin school, and that when very young, after which I neglected that language entirely. But when I had attained an acquaintance with the French, Italian, and Spanish, I was surprised to find, on looking over a Latin testament, that I understood so much more of that language than I had imagined, which encouraged me to apply myself again to the study of it, and I met with more success, as those preceding languages had greatly smoothed my way. From these circumstances I have thought that there is some inconsistency in our common mode of teaching languages. We are told that it is proper to begin first with Latin, and, having acquired that, it will be more easy to attain those modern languages which are derived from it. And yet we do not begin with the Greek in order more easily to acquire the Latin. It is true that if you can clamber and get to the top of a staircase without using the steps, you will more easily gain them in descending. But certainly, if you begin with the lowest, you will more easily ascend to the top and I would therefore offer it to the consideration of those who superintend the education of our youth, whether, since many of those who begin with the Latin quit the same after spending some years without having made any great proficiency, and what they have learnt become almost useless, so that their time has been lost. It would not have been better to have begun with the French, proceeding to the Italian, etc., for though after spending the same time they should quit the study of languages and never arrive at the Latin, they would, however, have acquired another tongue or two that, being in modern use, might be serviceable to them in the common life. Begin footnote. The authority of Franklin, the most eminently practical man of his age, in favor of reversing the study of the dead languages till the mind has reached a certain maturity, is confirmed by the confession of one of the most eminent scholars of any age. Our seminaries of learning, says Gibbon, do not exactly correspond with the precept of a Spartan king, that the child should be instructed in the arts which will be useful to the man, since a finished scholar may emerge from the head of Westminster or Eton in total ignorance of the business and conversation of English gentlemen in the latter end of the eighteenth century. But these schools may assume the merit of teaching all that they pretend to teach the Latin and Greek languages. End of footnote. After ten years' absence from Boston, and having become easy in my circumstances, I made a journey thither to visit my relations, which I could not sooner well afford. In returning I called at Newport to see my brother, then settled there with his printing-house. Our former differences were forgotten, and our meeting was very cordial and affectionate. He was fast declining in his health, and requested of me that, in case of his death, which he apprehended not far distant, I would take home his son, then but ten years of age, and bring him up to the printing business. 
This I accordingly performed, sending him a few years to school before I took him into the office. His mother carried on the business till he was grown up, when I assisted him with an assortment of new types, those of his father's being in a manner worn out. Thus it was that I made my brother ample amends for the service I had deprived him of by leaving him so early. In 1736 I lost one of my sons, a fine boy of four years old, by the smallpox, taken in the common way. I long regretted bitterly, and still regret, that I had not given it to him by inoculation. This I mention for the sake of parents, who omit that operation, on the supposition that they should never forgive themselves if a child died under it. My example showing that the regret may be the same either way, and that, therefore, the safer should be chosen. Our club, the Junto, was found so useful and afforded such satisfaction to the members that several were desirous of introducing their friends, which could not well be done without exceeding what we had settled as a convenient number, viz. twelve. We had, from the beginning, made it a rule to keep our institution a secret, which was pretty well observed. The intention was to avoid applications of improper persons for admittance, some of whom, perhaps, we might find it difficult to refuse. I was one of those who were against any addition to our number, but, instead of it, made in writing a proposal that every member separately should endeavour to form a subordinate club, with the same rules respecting queries, etc., and without informing them of the connection to the junto. The advantages proposed were the improvement of so many more young citizens by the use of our institutions, our better acquaintance with the general statements of the inhabitants on any occasion, as the junto member might propose what queries we should desire, and was to report that the junto what passed in his separate club. The promotion of our particular interests in business by more extensive recommendation, and the increase of our influence in public affairs, and our power of doing good, by spreading through the several clubs the sentiment of the junto. This project was approved, and every member undertook to form his club, but they did not all succeed. Five or six only were completed, which were called by different names, as the Vine, the Union, the Band, etc. They were useful to themselves, and afforded us a good deal of amusement, information, and instruction, besides answering in some considerable degree our views of influencing the public opinion on particular occasions, of which I shall give some instances in course of time as they happen. My first promotion was my being chosen in 1736 clerk of the General Assembly. This choice was made that year without opposition, but the year following, when I was again proposed, the choice, like that of the members, being annual, a new member made a long speech against me, in order to favor some other candidate. I was, however, chosen, which was the most agreeable to me, as, besides the pay for the immediate service as clerk, the place gave me a better opportunity of keeping up an interest among the members, which secured to me the business of printing the votes, laws, paper money, and other occasional jobs for the public, that on the whole were very profitable. I therefore did not like the opposition of this new member, who was a gentleman of fortune and education, with talents that were likely to give him, in time, great influence in the house. 
which indeed afterwards happened. I did not, however, aim at gaining his favour by paying any servile respect to him, but after some time took this other method. Having heard that he had in his library a certain very scarce and curious book, I wrote a note to him expressing my desire of perusing that book, and requesting he would do me the favour of lending it to me for a few days. He sent it immediately, and I returned it in about a week, with another note expressing strongly my sense of the favour. When we next met in the house, he spoke to me, which he had never done before, and with great civility, and he ever after manifested a readiness to serve me on all occasions, so that we became great friends, and our friendship continued to his death. This is another instance of the truth of an old maxim I had learned, which says, He that has once done you a kindness will be more ready to do you another than he whom you yourself have obliged. And it shows how much more profitable it is prudently to remove than to resent, return, and continue amicable proceeding. In 1737, Colonel Spotwood, late governor of Virginia, and then postmaster general, being dissatisfied with the conduct of his deputy in Philadelphia, respecting some negligence in rendering, and inexactitude of his accounts, took from him the commission and offered it to me. I accepted it readily, and found it of great advantage, for though the salary was small, it facilitated the correspondence that improved my newspaper, increased the number demanded, as well as the advertisements to be inserted, so that it came to afford me a considerable income. My old competitor's newspaper declined proportionately, and I was satisfied without retaliating his refusal, while postmaster, to permit my papers being carried by the writers. Thus he suffered greatly from his neglect in due accounting, and I mention it as a lesson to those young men who may be employed in managing affairs for others, that they should always render accounts, and make remittances, with great clearness and punctuality. The character of observing such a conduct is the most powerful of all recommendations to new employments and increase of business. End of chapter 10 The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin Chapter 11 Interest in Public Affairs I began now to turn my thoughts a little to public affairs, beginning, however, with small matters. The city watch was one of the first things that I conceived to want regulation. It was managed by the constables of the respective wards in turn. The constable warned a number of housekeepers to attend him for the night. Those who chose never to attend paid him six shillings a year to be excused, which was supposed to be for hiring substitutes, but was in reality much more than was necessary for that purpose, and made the constableship a place of profit and the constable, for a little drink, often got such ragamuffins about him as a watch that respectable housekeepers did not choose to mix with. Walking the rounds, too, was often neglected, and most of the nights spent in tippling. I thereupon wrote a paper to be read in Junto, representing these irregularities, but insisting more particularly on the inequality of the six shillings tax of the constables, respecting the circumstances of those who paid it, since a poor widow housekeeper, all whose property to be guarded by the watch, 
did not perhaps exceed the value of fifty pounds, paid as much as the wealthiest merchant, who had thousands of pounds worth of goods in his stores. On the whole, I proposed as a more effectual watch the hiring of proper men to serve constantly in that business, and as a more equitable way of supporting the charge, the levying of a tax that should be proportioned to the property. This idea being approved by the Junto, was communicated to the other clubs, but as arising in each of them, and though the plan was not immediately carried into execution, yet by preparing the minds of people for the change, it paved the way for the law obtained a few years after, when the members of our clubs were grown into more influence. About this time I wrote a paper, first to be read in Junto, but it was afterward published, on the different accidents and carelessnesses by which houses were set on fire, with cautions against them, and means proposed to avoiding them. This was much spoken of as a useful piece, and gave rise to a project, which soon followed it, of forming a company for the more readily extinguishing of fires, and mutual assistance in removing and securing of goods when in danger. Associates in this scheme were presently found, amounting to thirty. Our articles of agreement obliged every member to keep always in good order and fit for use a certain number of leather buckets, with strong bags and baskets, for packing and transporting of goods, which were to be brought to every fire, and we agreed to meet once a month and spend a social evening together in discoursing and communicating such ideas as occurred to us upon the subjects of fires, as might be useful in our conduct on such occasions. The utility of this institution soon appeared, and many more desiring to be admitted than we thought convenient for one company, they were advised to form another, which was accordingly done. And this went on, one new company being formed after another, till they became so numerous as to include most of the inhabitants who were men of property, and now, at the time of my writing this, though upwards of fifty years since its establishment, that which I first formed, called the Union Fire Company, still subsists and flourishes, though the first members are all deceased but myself and one, who is older by a year than I am. The small fines that have been paid by members for absence at a monthly meeting have been applied to the purchase of fire engines, ladders, fire hooks, and other useful implements for each company, so that I question whether there is a city in the world better provided with the means of putting a stop to the beginning conflagrations, and in fact, since these institutions, the city has never lost by fire, more than one or two houses at a time, and the flames have often been extinguished before the house in which they began has been consumed. In 1739, arriving among us from Ireland, the Reverend Mr. Whitfield, who had made himself remarkable there as an itinerant preacher, he was at first permitted to preach in some of our churches, but the clergy taking a dislike to him, soon refused him their pulpits, and he was obliged to preach in the fields. The multitudes of all sects and denominations that attended his sermons were enormous, and it was matter of speculation to me who was one of the number to observe the extraordinary influence of his oratory on his hearers, and how much they admired and respected him, 
notwithstanding his common abuse of them, by assuring them that they were naturally half-beast and half-devils. It was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. First being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were going religious, so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. Begin footnote. George Whitfield, 1714-1770, a celebrated English clergyman and pulpit orator, one of the founders of Methodism. End footnote. And it being found inconvenient to assemble in the open air, subject to its inclemencies, the building of a house to meet in was no sooner proposed, and persons appointed to receive contributions, but sufficient sums were soon received to procure the ground and erect the building, which was one hundred feet long and seventy broad, about the size of Westminster Hall, and the work was carried on with such spirit as to be finished in a much shorter time than could have been expected. Both house and grounds were vested in trustees, expressly for the use of any preacher of any religious persuasion who might desire to say something to the people at Philadelphia. The design in building, not being to accommodate any particular sect, but the inhabitants in general, so that even if the Mufti of Constantinople were to send a missionary to preach Mohammedism to us, he would find a pulpit at his service. Begin footnote a part of the palace of Westminster, now forming the vestibule to the Houses of Parliament in London. End footnote. Mr. Whitfield, in leaving us, went preaching all the way through the colonies to Georgia. The settlement of that province had lately been begun, but instead of being made with hardy, industrious husbandmen accustomed to labor, the only people fit for such an enterprise, it was with families of broken shopkeepers, and other insolvent debtors, many of indolent and idle habits, taken out of the jails, who, being set down in the woods, unqualified for clearing land, and unable to endure the hardships of a new settlement, perished in numbers, leaving many helpless children unprovided for. The sight of their miserable situation inspired the benevolent heart of Mr. Whitfield, with the idea of building an orphan-house there, in which they might be supported and educated. Returning northward, he preached up this charity, and made large collections, for his eloquence had a wonderful power over the hearts and purses of his hearers, of which I myself was an instant. I did not disapprove of the design, but as Georgia was then destitute of materials and workmen, and was proposed to send them from Philadelphia at a great expense, I thought it would have been better to have built the houses here and brought the children to it. Thus I advised, but he was resolute in his first project, rejected my counsel, and I therefore refused to contribute. I happened soon after to attend one of his sermons, in the course of which I perceived he intended to finish with a collection, and I silently resolved he should get nothing from me. I had in my pocket a handful of copper money, three or four silver dollars, and five pistoles in gold. As he proceeded I began to soften, and concluded to give the coppers. Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that, and determined to give the silver, and he finished so admirably that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collector's dish 
gold and all. At this sermon there was also one of our club, who, being of my sentiments respecting the building in Georgia, and suspecting a collection might be intended, had by precaution emptied his pockets before he came from home. Toward the conclusion of the discourse, however, he felt a strong desire to give, and applied to a neighbor who stood near him to borrow some money for the purpose. The application was unfortunately made to perhaps the only man in the company who had the firmness not to be affected by the preacher. His answer was, At any other time, friend Hopkinson, I would lend thee freely, but not now, for thee seems to be out of thy right senses. Some of Mr. Whitfield's enemies affected to support that he would apply these collections to his own private emollient, but I, who was intimately acquainted with him, being employed in printing his sermons and journals, etc., never had the least suspicion of his integrity, but am to this day decidedly of opinion that he was in all his conduct a perfectly honest man, and methinks my testimony in his favour ought to have the more weight, as we had no religious connection. He used, indeed, sometimes to pray for my conversion, but never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. Ours was a mere civil friendship, sincere on both sides, and lasted to his death. The following instance will show something of the terms on which we stood. Upon one of his arrivals from England at Boston, he wrote to me that he should come soon to Philadelphia, but knew not where he could lodge when there, as he understood his old friend and host, Mr. Benizé, was removed to Germantown. My answer was, You know my house. If you can make shift with its scanty accommodations, you will be most heartily welcome. He replied that if I made the kind offer for Christ's sake, I should not miss of a reward, and I returned, Don't let me be mistaken, it was not for Christ's sake, but for your sake. One of our common acquaintances jocosely remarked that, knowing it to be the custom of the saints, when they receive any favour, to shift the burden of the obligation from off their shoulders, and place it in heaven, I was contrived to fix it on earth. The last time I saw Mr. Whitfield was in London, when he consulted me about his orphan-house concern, and his purpose of appropriating to the establishment of a college. He had a loud and clear voice, and articulated his words and sentences so perfectly that he might be heard and understood at a great distance, especially as his auditors, however numerous, observed the most exact silence. He preached one evening from the top of the courthouse steps, which are in the middle of Market Street, and on the west side of Second Street, which crosses it at right angles. Both streets were filled, with his hearers, to a considerable distance. Being amongst the hindmost in Market Street, I had the curiosity to learn how far he could be heard by retiring backwards down the street towards the river, and I found his voice distinct until I came near Front Street, where some noise in that street obscured it. Imagining then a semicircle of which my distance would be the radius, and that it were filled with auditors, to each of whom I allowed two square feet, I computed that he might well be heard by more than thirty thousand. 
thus reconciled me to the newspaper accounts of his having preached to twenty-five thousand people in the fields and to the ancient histories of generals haranguing whole armies of which i had sometimes doubted by hearing him often i came to distinguish easily between sermons newly composed and those which he had often preached in the course of his travels his delivery of the latter was so improved by frequent repetitions that every accent every emphasis every modulation of voice was so perfectly well turned and well placed that without being interested in the subject one could not help being pleased with the discourse a pleasure of much the same kind with that received from an excellent piece of music this is an advantage itinerant preachers have over those who are stationary as the latter cannot well improve their delivery of a sermon by so many rehearsals his writing and printing from time to time gave great advantage to his enemies unguarded expressions and even erroneous opinions delivered in preaching might have been afterward explained or qualified by supposing others that might have accompanied them or they might have been denied but litera scripta manet critics attacked his writing violently and with so much appearance of reason as to diminish the number of his votaries and prevent their increase so that i am of opinion if he had never written anything he would have left behind him a much more numerous and important sect and his reputation might in that case have been still growing even after his death as there being nothing of his writing on which to found a censure and give him a lower character his proselytes would be left at liberty to feign for him as great a variety of excellence as their enthusiastic admiration might wish him to have possessed my business was now continually augmenting and my circumstances growing daily easier my newspaper having become very profitable as being for a time almost the only one in this and the neighbouring provinces i experienced too the truth of the observation that after getting the first hundred pound it is more easy to get the second money itself being of a profitable nature the partnership at carolina having succeeded i was encouraged to engage in others and to promote several of my workmen who had behaved well by establishing them with printing-houses in different colonies on the same terms with that in carolina most of them did well being enabled at the end of our term six years to purchase the types of me and go on working for themselves by which meant several families were raised partnerships often finishing quarrel but i was happy in this that mine were all carried on and ended amicably owing i think a good deal to the precaution of having very explicitly settled in our articles everything to be done by or expected from each partner so that there was nothing to dispute which precaution i would therefore recommend to all who enter into partnerships for whatever esteem partners may have for and confidence in each other at the time of the contract little jealousies and disgusts may arise with ideas of inequality in the care and burden of the business etc which are attended often with breach of friendship and of connection perhaps with lawsuits and other disagreeable consequences end of chapter eleven the autobiography of benjamin franklin
Chapter Twelve, Defense of the Province. I had, on the whole, abundant reason to be satisfied with my being established in Pennsylvania. There were, however, two things that I regretted: there being no provision for defense, nor for a complete education of youth, no militia, nor any college. I therefore, in seventeen forty-three, drew up a proposal for establishing an academy and at that time thinking the reverend mr peters who was out of employ a fit person to superintend such an institution i communicated the project to him but he having more profitable views in the service of the proprietaries which succeeded declined the undertaking and not knowing another at that time suitable for such a trust i let the scheme lie a while dormant i succeeded better the next year seventeen forty four in proposing and establishing a philosophical society. The paper I wrote for that purpose will be found among my writings when collected. With respect to defense, Spain having been several years at war against Great Britain, and being at length joined by France, which brought to us great danger, and the labored and long-continued endeavor of our governor, Thomas, to prevail with our Quaker assembly to pass a militia law, and make other provisions for the security of the province, having proved abortive, I determined to try what might be done by a voluntary association of people. To promote this, I first wrote and published a pamphlet entitled Plain Truth, in which I stated our defenseless situation in strong lights, with the necessity of union and discipline for our defense, and promised to propose in a few days an association to be generally signed for that purpose. The pamphlet had a sudden and surprising effect. I was called upon for the instrument of association, and having settled the draft of it with a few friends, I appointed a meeting of the citizens in the large building before mentioned. The house was pretty full. I had prepared a number of printed copies and provided pens and ink, dispersed all over the room. I harangued them a little on the subject, read the paper, and explained it, and then distributed the copies, which were eagerly signed, not the least objection being made. When the company separated and the papers were collected, we found about twelve hundred hands, and other copies being dispersed in the country, the subscribers amounted at length to upwards of ten thousand. These all furnished themselves as soon as they could with arms, formed themselves into companies and regiments, chose their officers, and met every week to be instructed in the manual exercise and other parts of military discipline the women by subscription among themselves provided silk colours which they presented to the companies painted with different devices and mottoes which i supplied the officers of the companies composing the philadelphia regiment being met chose me for their colonel but conceiving myself unfit I declined that station and recommended Mr. Lawrence, a fine person and a man of influence, who was accordingly appointed. I then proposed a lottery to defray the expense of building a battery below the town and furnishing it with cannon. It filled expeditiously, and the battery was soon erected, with Merlin's being framed of logs and filled with earth. We bought some old cannon from Boston, but these not being sufficient, we wrote to England for more soliciting at the same time our proprietaries for the assistance though without much expectation of obtaining it meanwhile colonel lawrence 
William Allen, Allen Taylor, Esquire, and myself were sent to New York by the Associators, commissioned to borrow some cannon of Governor Clinton. He first refused us peremptorily, but at dinner with his council, where there was great drinking of Madeira wine, as the custom of that place then was, he softened by degrees and said he would lend us six. After a few more bumpers he advanced to ten, and at length he very good-naturedly conceded eighteen. They were fine cannon, eighteen-pounders, with their carriages, which were soon transported and mounted on our battery, where the associators kept a nightly guard while the war lasted, and among the rest I regularly took my turn of duty there as a common soldier. My activity in these operations was agreeable to the governor and council. They took me into confidence, and I was consulted by them in every measure wherein their concurrence was thought useful to the association. Calling in the aid of religion, I proposed to them the proclaiming a fast to promote reformation and implore the blessing of heaven on our undertaking. They embraced the motion, but as it was the first fast ever thought of in the province, the secretary had no precedent from which to draw the proclamation. My education in New England, where a fast is proclaimed every year, was here of some advantage. I drew it in the accustomed style. It was translated into German, printed in both languages, and divulged through the province. This gave the clergy of the different sects an opportunity of influencing their congregation to join in the association, and it would probably have been general among all but Quakers if the peace had not soon intervened. Begin footnote. William Penn's agents sought recruits for the colony of Pennsylvania in the low countries of Germany, and there are still in eastern Pennsylvania many Germans, inaccurately called Pennsylvania Dutch. Many of them use a Germanized English. End of footnote. It was thought by some of my friends that by my activity in these affairs I should offend that sect, and thereby lose my interest in the assembly of the province, where they formed a great majority. A young gentleman, who had likewise some friends in the house, and wished to succeed me as their clerk, acquainted me that it was decided to displace me at the next election, and he therefore in good will advised me to resign as more consistent with my honour than being turned out. My answer to him was that I had read or heard of some public man who had made it a rule never to ask for an office, and never to refuse one when offered to him. I approve, says I, of his rule, and will practice it with a small addition. I shall never ask, never refuse, nor ever resign an office." If they will have my office of clerk to dispose of to another, they shall take it from me. I will not, by giving it up, lose my right of some time or other making reprisals on my adversaries. I heard, however, no more of this. I was chosen again unanimously, as usual, at the next election. Possibly, as they disliked my late intimacy with the members of council, who had joined the governors in all the disputes about military preparations, with which the house had long been harassed, they might have been pleased if I would voluntarily have left them, but they did not care to displace me on account merely of my zeal for the association, and they could not well give another reason. 
Indeed, I had some cause to believe that the defence of the country was not disagreeable to any of them, provided they were not required to assist in it, and I found that a much greater number of them than I could have imagined, though against offensive war, were clearly for the defensive. My pamphlets, pro and con, were published on the subject, and some by good Quakers in favour of defence, which I believe convinced most of their younger people. A transaction in our fire company gave me some insight into their prevailing sentiments. It had been supposed that we should encourage the scheme for building a battery by laying out the present stock, then about sixty pounds, in tickets of the lottery. By our rules, no money could be disposed of till the next meeting after the proposal. The company consisted of thirty members, of which twenty-two were Quakers, and eight only of other persuasions. We eight punctuously attended the meetings, but though we thought that some of the Quakers would join us, we were by no means sure of a majority. Only one Quaker, Mr. James Morris, appeared to oppose the measure. He expressed much sorrow that it had ever been proposed, as he said, friends were all against it, and it would create such discord as might break up the company. We told him that we saw no reason for that, we were the minority, and, if friends, were against the measure, and outvoted us, we must, and should, agreeably to the usage of all societies, submit. When the hour for business arrived, and was moved to put to the vote, he allowed we might then do it by the rules. But as he could assure us that a number of members intended to be present for the purpose of opposing it, it would be but candid to allow little time for their appearing. While we were disputing this, a waiter came to tell me two gentlemen below desired to speak with me. I went down and found they were two of our Quaker members. They told me there were eight of them assembled at a tavern just by, and that they were determined to come and vote with us if there should be occasion, which they hoped would not be the case, and desired we should not call for their assistance if we could do without it as their voting for such a measure might embroil them with their elders and friends. Being thus secure of a majority, I went up, and after a little seeming hesitation, agreed to a delay of another hour. This Mr. Morris allowed to be extremely fair. Not one of his opposing friends appeared, at which he expressed great surprise, and at the expiration of the hour we carried the resolution eight to one, and as of the twenty-two Quakers, Eight were ready to vote with us, and thirteen by their absence manifested that they were not inclined to oppose the measure. I afterward estimated the proportion of Quakers sincerely against the defense as one to twenty-one only, for these were all regular members of that society, and in good reputation among them, and had due notice of what was proposed at that meeting. The Honorable and Learned Mr. Logan who had always been of that sect, was one who wrote an address to them, declaring his approbation of defensive war, and supporting his opinion by many strong arguments. He put into my hand sixty pounds to be laid out in lottery tickets for the battery, with directions to apply what prize might be drawn wholly to that service. He told me the following anecdote of his old master, William Penn, respecting defense. He came over from England when a young man, with that proprietary, and as his secretary. It was war time, 
and their ship was chased by an armed vessel supposed to be an enemy. Their captain prepared for defence, but told William Penn and his company of Quakers that he did not expect their assistance, and they might retire into the cabin, which they did, except James Logan, who chose to stay upon deck and was quartered to a gun. The supposed enemy proved a friend, and there was no fighting, but when the secretary went down to communicate the intelligence, William Penn rebuked him severely for staying upon deck, and undertaking to assist in defending the vessel, contrary to the principles of friends, especially as it had not been required by the captain. This reproof being before all the company, piqued the secretary who answered, I being thy servant, why did thee not order me to come down? But thee was willing enough that I should stay and help to fight the ship when thee thought there was danger. Begin footnote. James Logan, 1674-1751, came to America with William Penn in 1699, and was the business agent for the Penn family. He bequeathed his valuable library, preserved at his county seat, Senton, to the city of Philadelphia. End footnote. By being many years in the assembly, the majority of which were constantly Quakers, gave me frequent opportunities of seeing the embarrassment given them by their principle against war. Whenever application was made to them, by order of the Crown, to grant aids for military purposes, they were unwilling to offend government on the one hand by a direct refusal, and their friends, the body of the Quakers, on the other, by compliance contrary to their principles. Hence a variety of evasions to avoid complying, and modes of disguising the compliance when it became unavoidable. The common mode at last was to grant money under the phrase of its being for the king's use, and never to inquire how it was applied. But if the demand was not directly from the crown, that phrase was found not so proper, and some other was to be invented, as when powder was wanting, I think it was for the garrison at Lewisburg, and the government of New England solicited a grant of some from Pennsylvania, which was much urged on the house by Governor Thomas. They could not grant money to buy powder, because that was an ingredient of war, but they voted an aid to New England of three thousand pounds to be put into the hands of the governor, and appropriated it for the purchase of bread, flour, wheat, or other grain some of the council desirous of giving the house still further embarrassment, advised the governor not to accept provision, as not being the thing he had demanded, but he replied, I shall take the money, for I understand very well their meaning. Other grain is gunpowder, which he accordingly bought, and they never objected to it. It was an allusion to this fact that, when in our fire company, we feared the success of our proposal in favour of the lottery, and I had said to my friend Mr. Singh, one of our members, if we fail, let us move the purchase of a fire engine with the money. The Quakers can have no objection to that. And then, if you nominate me and I you as a committee for that purpose, we will buy a great gun, which is certainly a fire engine. I see, says he, you have improved by being so long in the assembly. Your equivocal project would be just a match for their wheat or other grain. These embarrassments that the Quakers suffered from having established and published it as one of their principles 
that no kind of war was lawful, and which being once published they could not afterwards, however they might change their mind, easily get rid of, reminds me of what I think a more prudent conduct in another sect among us, that of the Dunkers. I was acquainted with one of its founders, Michael Welfare, soon after it appeared. He complained to me that they were grievously calumated by the zealots of other persuasions, and charged with the abominable principles and practices to which they were utter strangers. I told him this had always been the case with new sects, and that to put a stop to such abuse, I imagined it might be well to publish the articles of their belief, and the rules of their discipline. He said it had been proposed among them, but not agreed to for this reason. When we were first drawn together as a society, he said, it had pleased God to enlighten our minds so far as to see some doctrines which we once esteemed truths were errors, and that others which we had esteemed errors were real truths. From time to time he has been pleased to afford us further light, and our principles have been improving and our errors diminishing. Now we are not sure that we are arrived at the end of this progression, and at the perfection of spiritual or theological knowledge, and we fear that, if we should once print our confession of faith, we should feel ourselves as if bound and confirmed by it, and perhaps be unwilling to receive further improvement, and our successors still more so, as conceiving what we, their elders and founders, have done, to be something sacred never to be departed from. This modesty in a sect is perhaps a singular instance in the history of mankind. Every other sect, supposing itself in possession of all truth, and that those who differ are so far in the wrong, like a man travelling in foggy weather, those at some distance before him on the road he sees wrapped up in the fog, as well as those behind him, and also the people in the fields on each side, but near him all appears clear though in truth he is as much in the fog as any of them. To avoid this kind of embarrassment, the Quakers have of late years been gradually declining the public service in the assembly and in the magistracy, choosing rather to quit their power than their principle. In order of time I should have mentioned before that, having in 1742 invented an open stove for the better warming of rooms, and at the same time saving fuel, as the fresh air admitted was warmed in entering, I made a present of the model to Mr. Robert Grace, one of my early friends, who, having an iron furnace, found the casting of the plates for these stoves a profitable thing, as they were growing in demand. To promote that demand I wrote and published a pamphlet entitled An Account of the New Invented Pennsylvania Fireplaces, wherein their construction and manner of operation is particularly explained, their advantages above every other method of warming rooms demonstrated, and all objections that have been raised against the use of them answered and obviated, etc. This pamphlet had a good effect. Governor Thomas was so pleased with the construction of this stove, as described in it, that he offered to give me a patent for the sole vending of them for a term of years but I declined it from a principle which has ever weighed with me on such occasions, viz., that as we enjoy great advantages from the inventions of others, we should be glad of an opportunity to serve others by any invention of ours, 
and thus we should do freely and generously. Begin footnote. The Franklin stove is still in use. Warwick Furnace, Chester County, Pennsylvania, across the Shishkul River from Potsdam. End footnote. An ironmonger in London, however, assumed a good deal of my pamphlet, and working it up into his own, and making some small changes in the machine, which rather hurt its operation, got a patent for it there, and made, as I was told, a little fortune by it. And this is not the only instance of patents taken out for my inventions by others, though not always with the same success, which I never contested, as having no desire of profiting by patents myself, and hating disputes. The use of these fireplaces, in very many houses, both of this and the neighboring colonies, has been, and is, a great saving of wood to the inhabitants. End of chapter 12